0: Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee as you're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Hello, I'm Otis, and today I'm talking with Maddie McAllister of the Museum of Tropical Queensland in Australia. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey Otis, thank you for having me along.
0: What is the main focus of your research? What questions interest you the most?
1: Ah, uh, OK, so I am a maritime archaeologist, um, which means that I'm very interested in any form of ocean-going travel, really, so ships and shipwrecks, to aircraft wrecks to um, you know, anything from really early a couple of thousand years ago to more modern, like World War II. Uh, shipwrecks in our ocean floor
0: and how often is it things that are not boats you mentioned aircraft how common is that
1: <laughs> yeah okay so maritime archaeology is a strange sort of uh sub-discipline that sits by itself it, it really has to do with anything when you think about maritime history really so that can be shipwrecks uh sailing vessels steam-powered vessels it can be things from ports and harbours, um, boat ramps, things that are submerged underwater, right up to, I guess, sort of maritime cultural landscape. So if you think of a prehistoric town, for example, that was based on a coastline and had a harbour and a port, that's all really part of maritime archaeology. So within that, we tend to sort of specialise in smaller things, so for me, Um, One of my specialties is wooden ship construction from the 19th century, essentially.
0: Is a lot of the work you do close to the land or do you often go very far out?
1: Uh, It depends. We really, I guess, search for ships or shipwrecks that will give us a really good story. So I am a scuba diver, um, but I'm limited to about 30 metres of water. And anything deeper than that, we tend to use things like um, ROVs, remotely operated vehicles, and little uh, robots and drop cameras to give us a picture of the floor. So not necessarily, although my preference is certainly a site that I can actually physically work on.
0: Which did you become interested in first, archaeology or scuba diving?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I grew up... Uh, in a small little tourist coastal town in Western Australia. um, And I spent most of my time in the water on holidays so I could swim probably well before I could walk. Uh, My granddad used to tell me great stories of shipwrecks, but I would say that my first love was really just the ocean. So I wanted to be a marine biologist and I remember for my 14th birthday, I got my diving, scuba diving certification and um, perhaps maybe early high school, I figured out I could combine uh, a love of history with the ocean. And that just came together as maritime archaeology. So a strange sort of path into that one, I think.
0: What is the lower age limit for getting your dive certificate?
1: Yeah, it is, it is about 14 or 15 for an adult certificate. Um, I think below that you can get a, a children's one, but that's really limited. So I was probably right on the edge there, I think.
0: Can you tell our listeners, how does underwater archaeology differ from archaeology on land?
1: Yeah. Okay. This is a great question. I have, I mean, obviously I'm quite biased. I think that archaeology underwater is far more exciting and far more fun. I guess in general, the principles are the same. So we really are investigating the human past through the material culture. The real big barrier for us as underwater archaeologists is that we have to take the techniques that archaeologists have been using on land for decades and try and find a way to do the same thing underwater. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, For example, one of the main drawbacks we have is the deeper you go underwater, the less time you have on the seafloor. So if you're a land archeologist, I guess you can work on a site while it's nice weather in daylight. That can be, I don't know, six to 10 hours. Uh, A few sites I've worked on, we only have time on our shipwreck maybe for 25 minutes twice a day. So uh, we really have to prioritize our recording, I think. And we've changed the way we do that underwater. It's a lot of photography as opposed to slow manual techniques.
0: Are there a lot of other difficulties involved in underwater archaeology?
1: Um, I would say yes. Um, (laughs) I I guess one of the difficulties would be that we often have to go to quite remote areas. I know that's very similar to land as well, but when you add in a factor of working in a very dynamic environment. So uh, picture a common shipwreck in Australia is on a reef, say the Great Barrier Reef, just off the coast here of me. And it's between nine metres of water to one metre of water, and it constantly faces swell and wave action. So not only are you having to work underwater and you can't really communicate with your, your other archaeologists, uh, with voice. Uh, it's all by hand signal, but you're facing being whipped around a site um, and dynamic environments, I guess it can be pretty risky, but uh, that also makes it really exciting and fun.
0: Do they often use uh, those masks where they can they can speak to each other? Yes. Is that common or very uncommon?
1: Yes, no, that's getting more and more common. Um, although that really sort of requires a site that uh, is quite calm and still um, to to be on you don't really want to be on one of those um, and being whipped around on a site uh, in swell and current it's more sort of something that you use when you can sit on the seafloor and work and operate and talk to either the divers around you or to the team at the surface on the boat so that's yeah full face comms do occur more and more
0: why is that why can you not do it when they're moving around more
1: yeah i guess um often they're quite bulky um expensive uh bits of equipment most of the time really we're used to getting in the water with just your general i think if you think of like a scuba diver with just their face mask and a mouth regulator so Um, We operate like that quite well. A lot of the times, the full face comms, this is getting more into sort of the commercial diving aspect, um, they have to be tethered to the surface. So sometimes that's fine in a a quiet, calm sort of environment, but when you get dropped into a site by a little um, dinghy or a little boat and you're a long way away from the main boat, you don't want to be tethered to that in rough conditions.
0: Oh, I see. It's because it's tethered. That's the difficulty.
1: Yeah, there. Yeah, there are two uh, two options. Like there is one that's a radio communication, but you have to be quite close to each other. Um, the common one is is having the, a cable to your head mask to the surface boat. Yeah.
0: Uh, okay, everyone's connected to the boat, and all yes. the communications are going through the wire yeah. and back down to whoever else. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's largely the tether, which is the the difficult part
1: yeah yep especially in waves and current you don't really want to be attached to a boat like that
0: how are the methods different
1: <laughs> <laughs> um I guess probably I would say that um, one of the prime ones is digging underwater um, it's always highly entertaining with me when I catch up with my land archaeology friends and they're talking about getting a new trowel as part of their kit. Um, I don't own a trowel. I never have. We can't really dig underwater. If I guess if you've ever gone down to the beach as a kid or as an adult, I guess even, and tried to dig a hole right at the shore and sort of sand just keeps falling in and at best you'll get a cone sort of depth. Um, It's exactly the same whether you're at that shore bit or you're in five meters of water or 10 meters of water. So we can't really use shovels and buckets underwater. It doesn't quite work. Our prime method is called a water dredge. And it's um, it's a big tube, I guess, that's attached to a water pump and it slowly sucks water through it. And to excavate or to dig underwater, we actually sit that right next to us and you slowly um, hand fan water and sediment into this sort of um, vacuum cleaner underwater to uncover the site so um, very very different in terms of digging or excavating manually Um, that's one of the prime ones i would say and the most interesting they don't really use that on land at all (laughs) yeah
0: no i can't say i've ever seen people vacuuming up the (laughs) trenches (laughs)
1: yeah
0: A lot of it is photography. Yes. Do you draw underwater as well?
1: Yeah, and I would say um, that is always a core skill that we like to keep and like to use, mapping underwater by drawing. Um, And most people, I guess, wouldn't imagine that you can draw underwater or write underwater. We use a special type of waterproof paper um called mylar paper it kind of looks i guess the same as baking paper in a way um and you can write on that with a pencil and draw and record underwater and then transcribe it once you get to the surface so yes we do draw underwater we just can't uh often unless you're on a very long fieldwork project like a few months excavating a site you can't take the time um to to draw very slowly it has to sort of be a quick recording you know you might only have one dive on this site every two years so you've got to draw what you can and you tend to prioritize especially in this day and age photography and digital recording
0: can you record the stratigraphy very well
1: yeah interesting
0: if you can't travel through it how do you get the profile
1: yeah (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's a really um, different thing. I guess my experience is really just with shipwrecks. I know that there are underwater archaeologists that have been looking at stratigraphy of submerged cultural landscapes, for example. But when it comes to shipwrecks, really we're only interested in the the ship itself and the stratigraphy for us then is actually more about the cargo levels and the artifact material as opposed to looking at layers in the sediment. Um, most beach sand you can't even get a clean wall on so you'll, you'll try to dig that one by one meter excavation trench across a wreck but you'll always have that cone sort of shape. You can't ever get nice square um, right angle walls unless you have um, really thick clay that you can work on underwater. That's the difference there. So stratigraphy for maritime archaeologists and shipwrecks is much more about the layers of the ship and the ship, how that has sat on the sea floor and how that's degraded and fallen in on itself. So our stratigraphy is much more about the boat as a whole, really.
0: Do you sometimes excavate out of the water, like near the water along the edges of the rivers or the edge of the, the shore?
1: Yes, yeah, um, yeah, definitely. A lot of shipwrecks, um, particularly around Australia, I guess, are on surf beaches or that intertidal zone where they might be underwater at high tide, but at low tide they're completely uncovered. So we do excavate uh, in that sense there, but. You know, once again it's sort of it's in beach sand, it's sort of it's erodes half of the time and then it recovers with sand once again. So the stratigraphy around the shipwreck is generally not as important to us as actually recording what's there, the material on the site.
0: So the term maritime archaeology is not always the same as underwater archaeology. Yeah. So it could it could be near the water or about activities related to the water
1: yep I would say there are actually three um, sub themes within maritime archaeology so maritime like I discussed at the start has anything to do with um, being on above or around the water and that also does include working in rivers and estuaries so not just the ocean or the sea Then you have underwater archaeology, which in my mind, and I guess most maritime archaeologists would agree with me, that that really is people who only work on underwater sites. They don't do anything above the land. And then the third one um, is nautical archaeology. So that really looks just at ships and how ships are built and shipwrecks, how um, shipbuilding techniques and adaptations over time to how people have um, crafted and used seagoing vessels essentially
0: what might be a common research objective for each of these three subfields what are some typical things that people would investigate
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good question I guess um, maritime archaeologists we can have such a range in questions and it can be anything to um, War and how ships were used as war, how different countries interacted overseas, um, anything about how ports and local towns operated, to what life was like for one individual person on board a ship at a certain time. Um, that's probably my favourite, is when I guess most people in the modern day don't really think about two or three hundred years ago being on a wooden sailing vessel for weeks and months or even years at a time and how different that um, is as a social construct so how people interacted with each other in a small confined space and how different that is to everyday life on land we learn a lot about that through maritime archaeology Um, Coming to nautical archaeology, that gets really technical and even looks at naval architecture and the design of ships over time, how they move through the water, different materials and resources for building in terms of wood, copper alloys or steel. So um, that's really for those ship nerds that love um, that side of shipwrecks and then underwater archaeology possibly um can cover anything to do with shipwrecks but i would also say it it potentially focuses a bit on method as well and how we adapt you know our techniques and our questions to working underwater a little bit more
0: i guess there's a lot of overlap between all of these
1: yes a lot
0: <laughs> are there a lot of people who also they, they, they do maritime archaeology but they also do Uh, typical terrestrial archaeology, or do most people specialise specifically in maritime?
1: Yeah, Um, that's a good question. I would say the majority of maritime archaeologists that I know, um, their research questions might be uh, as specific as looking at particular sites, but then a lot of them also will be interested in particular times and... Maybe how ships were used in an economical sense or for trade or things like that. So they potentially look at an example shipwreck site and then actually sort of widen their their view in terms of what they're researching. And they might look at ports and harbors and, and specific land sites as well. Um, I would say that most of us study maritime archaeology because we love being underwater. So (laughs) that's probably most of our time is that we just want to be out working underwater as well.
0: So most maritime archaeologists are also scuba divers?
1: Yes, yeah, I would say 99% of us are, Yep.
0: How is it different if you were excavating part of a ship when it's underwater and you're diving? as opposed to when the tide goes out and and maybe it's actually now exposed. Are there some different methods you use?
1: Yes. I mean, um, when it is exposed, it is always a bit easier. You know, you can get in there in some instances with shovels and things like that. I think we've actually found now that those sites that sit you know, partially underwater at times and then uncovered and and dry in a sense are actually some of the most difficult sites to work on because you can never really employ underwater techniques properly. You can't really employ land techniques properly. You sort of sit in this middle zone where you have to come up with it on the fly, I guess, and, and how you can actually excavate a site in mud and at low tide where you might have two hours or something like that. So um, we don't really use water dredges when it's dry on sites like that, unless it's to sort of um, get below the water table, the water level once you dig down a bit more, yeah.
0: Are there some special techniques that are used in those those areas where when the tide's gone out, you're not underwater, but you're not on solid sort of land over
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah i mean gosh i'm just trying to think about i've worked on a few sites like that um one that comes to mind is a project a few years ago called car park whalers and it was in western australia and maybe at the mid 19th century so we're looking like 1840s quite a few american whale ships washed up during a storm onto a beach if you go forward in time 100 years um you 150 years the land itself has changed so due to i guess modern infrastructure for ports and Um, sea walls and things the land had extended out over these sites and they were now instead of sitting on the shore a good two or three hundred meters inland and we dug down about two meters two three meters to get to these sites and then we couldn't get any further because it was sitting at this water level and around the site we actually put maybe 50 pipes down around it that acted like drains and they constantly sucked up water during the day. So it lowered the level of water in this site so we could excavate it dry. Um, I think that's uh, maybe an extreme example It worked really well. It could only just cope so it maybe gave us an extra half a meter of dry um, area. to to excavate but when you sit in that in between it's almost impossible because you can't really see anything you're just sort of moving sludge around with your hands Um, a lot of our recording is done by feel at that point so yeah yeah
0: (laughs) if there are wooden structures or wooden objects once you take them out of the water they'll they'll deteriorate a lot faster won't they
1: yeah so i think a lot of People generally don't understand that um, things like that, so woods and organics like uh, bones or leather or lace actually preserve in the right conditions really, really well underwater, far better than they do on land over you know the same period of time. The problem then is that, like you're saying, once you excavate something and you recover it, say um, a piece of timber, a piece of wood, If you just lift that up onto the surface and let it dry out naturally, it will shrink and crack and warp because the cells inside that timber, um, their cell walls have been replaced by by water. There's nothing left in them anymore. So if you just let that dry, they'll shrink and and shrivel. Um, The biggest cost for any work on maritime archaeological sites and material is conservation and that requires years of um treating these materials so that they can eventually be dry and sit in a museum or in a collection without warping and distorting really
0: is that common then to remove them or is it most times they'll leave it in the water
1: yeah uh i would say maybe up until about 10 or 15 years ago it was still really common practice to excavate and lift you know as as much as you would off land of dry things now we really have to think about it because you know if it's your project you might not actually have the funding to be able to afford to look after these things so you really have to um i guess prove first that you should dig um, because once you start digging a shipwreck underwater you'll disturb that i guess that um, consistent conservation environment that they 've been in for the last hundred years, and you open them up to bacteria and oxygen and things that'll break down timbers really quickly. so um a short answer is no, we don't excavate and lift things up as often as we did you know ten, twenty years ago, and that's purely for the cost of looking after these things for the rest of eternity, essentially
0: are most of the shipwrecks that you work on if you removed all the sand and there was good visibility would the average person recognize it as being a ship or are they very spread out it's collapsed how how much does it look like a ship to someone who's not uh, a specialist in in this work before? um
1: That is such a great question. And I often forget that, you know, you get so focused on your own job and your own interests. Most of the iron shipwrecks, so a lot of times if I say I work on shipwrecks to people, the first thing they ask about is like Titanic. So iron and steel hulled ships from, you know, the 20th and 21st centuries sit far better and actually look like you would imagine a shipwreck to look like sitting on the bottom of the seafloor. We unfortunately have um, depictions thanks to um, stories and movies, best example is um, The Little Mermaid and Disney of wooden galleons that sit on the seafloor with their masts up and their sails billowing in the water. Most wooden shipwrecks like that don't survive. Um, The best way I can describe it is that they look much more like an aircraft wreck that you might see on the news, but imagine that as a wooden ship underwater, particularly on the dynamic reef sites that I do work on. So they're often sprawled bits of timber and anchors and cannon across the site. When you are really lucky is that you have potentially a small part of the ship and often these wooden shipwrecks that we study it's maybe just the bottom meter or two meters of the hull that survives and that sits and sinks under the seafloor so even if there is something there um, and it was all uncovered in good visibility I'm not sure that the average person would recognize it as a shipwreck that's for sure
0: how do you normally find out about these? Are they because local people have have mentioned it, or from the historical records you know it's there, or yeah, you have some method of searching for new sites?
1: Yeah, it's a bit of both. I would say that um often local people are the ones that start something, and I can think of you know most of the famous shipwrecks around Australia were found by um a vocational, so divers whose hobby and passion is looking for shipwrecks and you know they'll spend their weekends and holidays searching reefs and diving and um, looking for clues to a certain site and once they find one um, they contact us and we work you know on on identifying the shipwreck on working on it on on discovering the history but then you have the other side which is probably more common now where um, we actually will specifically look for certain shipwreck sites and particularly the deeper we go now with remote sensing and, and recording deep sea floor with things like sonar. Um we're specifically looking for certain sites in that sense.
0: How do you know where to look for them?
1: <laughs> um oh, um Most of what we do, especially in Australia and and Europe and the Mediterranean, I think is very different um, because we still have a lot of historical records and most of our European shipwrecks only date back to three or four hundred years ago. So we still have those journals and um, logbooks and newspaper accounts that give you an indication of when a ship was last seen, it was heading up this way, Um, you know, the... It went into a storm, so you can get an idea, but that might only narrow you down to like a uh, hundred square kilometers of the coastline oh. um, yeah, <laughs> yeah so quite a, yeah, quite a bit, so you know in Australia, we've got something like um i don't know seven thousand shipwrecks, and we've only found ten percent of them because our coastline is so big, but also it gets deep quickly, and a lot of their historical anecdotes are so broad and vague. So I foresee in the next, you know, 10, 20 years, as our technology gets better in terms of mapping the seafloor and ocean hydrography, we'll actually find more and more shipwrecks that are perhaps out of reach of a scuba diver, but still really historically significant.
0: What are some of the most interesting discoveries that you've made?
1: (laughs) Um... Gosh, I'm trying to think of what would be interesting to someone who's not a um, ship construction nerd. I have found everything from bottles and ceramics, um, bricks on shipwreck sites, all the way up to silver coins, um, um, Spanish pieces of eight on sites. Although I think that silver coins or gold for any fact on a shipwreck site is potentially the most boring thing um i haven't found it particularly myself but i within our collection here we have leather shoes from hms pandora so a british naval vessel that wrecked on the great barrier reef here in um 1790 and that has someone whoever owned that shoe it has their foot imprint still in the sole of the shoe from you know a couple of hundred years ago, so to me that's far more interesting than um finding any treasure in in inverted commas. There, I guess the real treasure is people's belongings. I think and telling that story. So, yeah, and it, I mean the other side to that is that I just love the actual ship itself. That's far more interesting to me as well. But I like ship construction. So,
0: <laughs> when you find a ship. If most of it's still there, or the or the, the belongings, the, the objects we know, are still there, I guess that's like a sort of a, a snapshot of time. When the boat sank, when the ship went down. Yeah. It was a very quick process. People might have taken a few things with them, but how long do you think it would take before people knew it was sinking and that it was actually, it was done?
1: Yeah. Um... I guess that's really different to archaeologists that work on a certain, you know, um a village or a site when that's thousands and hundreds of years of occupation where we look at a a moment in time like you're saying. Um it varies. There's some really famous ones where, you know, a shipwreck went down or a ship went down and there's a survivor who noted it sinking in 2 minutes or something. So there's not a lot of time there. Um, I think a really good example is the Mary Rose in the UK, um, King Henry's um, ship that tilted on one side and flooded and sank very, very quickly. So that's a perfect example of what we like to call, although it is a bit cliche, um, shipwrecks as a time capsule. So it sort of captures life at that moment um, and preserves it for hundreds of years. And then you can see what that's like. Most other shipwrecks, you know, they run aground on reefs or in environments where people can generally, they have a few hours, if not a few days to get off a shipwreck that's going down or a vessel that's stranded on a reef. Um, And often then, especially, uh, you know, here in, in the 19th century, we didn't have a lot of European resources and equipment. So any chance to salvage anything off a shipwreck was also really important. So even though the people that were on board a vessel that might have run onto a reef and eventually wrecked there got away. There's always the chance that other people came and, and took what they could from the site before the ship fully disintegrated. Yeah.
0: So you'll get a different type of site if it's run aground, as opposed to if it's sunk a bit of distance away from the shore. Yeah. Like if it's within salvageable distance
1: yes definitely always if it's far more easily accessible um you know it's almost guaranteed to have been picked over at some some moment in the past you know a couple of hundred years to a few decades ago um when you know humans are naturally curious about things like that that they find so yeah there's always um we call it it's part of the site formation process of a shipwreck so Right up from the point where it wrecked, um, until it's found and excavated, there are always human interactions that can happen to that site. So um, often we don't think that if you're excavating, like right down in a in a hull, you know, you don't really expect that to have been done before um, by people who are just salvaging things.
0: What are some of the most interesting projects that you've worked on, and what made them interesting?
1: yeah i um i mean I've been lucky enough to work on a lot of sites around australia um Car park Whalers was certainly one of them just because of the extreme length we had to go to to excavate a shipwreck on dry land uh, One of my favorites was a recent one actually in Victoria, so near Melbourne in australia um a a cargo ship had become uncovered on a local surf beach and um we were working in that environment you know that intertidal like it was underwater at high tide and we could only work at low tide Um, and i got a bunch of students along from a university here to help excavate and we just had this beautiful local community who absolutely adored their shipwreck that had i guess sort of risen from under the beach and they were really passionate about Um, protecting it and how to look after it um, and what they could do, you know, in the future. And one of the things that kept coming back to us was that it was sort of a sign of changing environments and um, coastal change, you know, erosion on that beach potentially linked to climate change. So that was really fascinating. Um, One of the most sort of biggest ones that impacted me actually wasn't working underwater, but it was to do with a shipwreck in the Abrolhos in Western Australia. So um, there's a famous shipwreck called Batavia. It was a Dutch East India ship company. It ran, um, hit a reef in the middle of the night off the middle of Western Australia, so a long way from anywhere um, and it has this morbid story of survivors making their way to this tiny desert little island, and the captain going off to get help in Indonesia and unfortunately leaving behind a real um crazy mutineer so it's a it's a real story of murders and um disaster on a little deserted island which is really fascinating and a few years ago we worked on a project called shipwrecks of the roaring 40s and an aspect of that was actually to find the burials uh, of the survivors from that site who potentially died from illness or, or drowning in the wrecking event but most likely were murdered at some point so we did a lot of remote sensing of this coral deserted island Um, and actually found about 10 um, skeletal remains there and excavated them. So that was probably um, something really different for me and I'll always remember it, but it was also quite eerie, you know, having heard of this story of murder and mutiny for so many years um, to then be there working on investigating these burials and finding out what happened to these people was pretty big.
0: And did it turn out that the... Well, at least the 10 that you found did it turn out that they had been murdered or did it look like they'd been murdered or?
1: yeah it was a it was a really tricky site because it was on this coral you know it's hard to explain like in some cases it was the sand but a lot of coral. so the organic things like clothes hadn't really survived really well um, and i guess some of the only evidence you could have when it's just bones there is if they um, have cut marks on them or things like that so i think we figured out it's probably closer to 50 50 in that some were initially buried um like straight after batavia hit the reef and they drowned and washed up on shore they were in a really um typical burial fashion laid out flat and straight with their arms across their chest um we did find one where the bodies um were piled on top of each other and one had kind of been dragged over the top. So that definitely more indicates that it wasn't, I guess, uh, didn't have as much ceremony to go with it in terms of the burial. So you can lean to the way of thinking that um, there were probably murdered people that had been thrown on top of a a burial, um, an excavated burial ground pretty much.
0: One of your interests is digital site reconstruction and 3D photogrammetry. These are becoming quite popular methods today but what are some of the challenges of doing this underwater
1: yeah i um so i really got interested in digital reconstruction and 3d photogrammetry because i would often try to describe a shipwreck to my friends and families and they could never quite comprehend what i was talking about and Sometimes a hand-drawn picture never really conveys the same information and it maybe was about, you know, six to eight years ago now we started to see these software come about that are like an automated modelling software from photos. So my PhD research was really looking at how you can take photos of a site underwater and put it through this software and get a 3D Digital reconstruction of a shipwreck for not just for academic use and for us archaeologists, but actually as a really great way to, I guess, bring these shipwrecks up and out of the water and show them to people that might never ever get the chance to look at them. The problem is, is that uh, when you start taking photos underwater, there's a whole range of different factors that can affect it. So, anything from not having clear visibility, so lots of sand and bubbles and noise in the water means that you can't really you know you're lucky enough to see let alone photograph a site um to like physical issues like light refraction bending of light in water um and distortion of camera lenses on the outside um so it is tricky and sometimes it you know you think you might have taken a couple of hundred photos of a site and gotten really good data set to make a model from only to get back and it doesn't work Um, but software and technology is advancing so well at the moment that we really are being able to do amazing things on tricky underwater shipwreck sites and model them
0: what can researchers do with these reconstructions later Hmm.
1: yeah um We can use them, I mean, particularly, we've been talking about methods for excavating and methods for recording shipwrecks underwater, and, you know, 20 years ago, they may never have dreamed of having the ability to completely record a 20-metre-long shipwreck site in 40 minutes. You know, that would have taken days and weeks. Now we can do that, and you can actually record that. So, say I go out to a site this year get a great photographic record and do a great digital model. And then I come back in two years and I can do the same thing again and overlay those models and actually see if the site has more sand on it, if more seaweed is growing on it, or if it's uncovered or damaged in some way. So there's a lot of site management aspects and and site preservation that we can use that for. Um, On top of that, I mean, for me, my passion is actually just public outreach and communication to to take a site that may not really look like a shipwreck at first and add bits and aspects to virtually recreate the ship. So it's really going to be, I think, the best tool for us in the future to step away from really boring academic data to to bringing it, bringing a shipwreck and the research we do to the public in a really you know, interesting and engaging way pretty much.
0: I think that's important too. In fact, one might argue it's equally as important as the research, because this is this is a form of uh it's public heritage. So in a way it belongs to the public, and particularly if it's getting public funding. Yeah. <laughs> they definitely should get something for their money, not just articles which they may not be able to read or they may be really boring if you if you don't have a very specific background so i think it's good to communicate our finds and and i think people learn different ways some learn visually some learn from reading some learn from hearing so having these digital reconstructions it's a i think it's it's one more way to communicate what we're doing
1: yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that 100%. I almost think that there's no point in doing the research we do if if it doesn't actually get back to, you know, the, the people, the public and it's their heritage like you're saying. So if they don't know what we're doing um, and they don't get the benefit of it and get to understand these stories and, you know, whether they're not, you know, world famous stories, the little local snippets here and there, it's actually really important that we work on constantly getting that back to the public in a way that is you know easy to understand and not boring and filled with technical jargon and academic papers that's for sure
0: I know with uh, on land particularly in historical sites photogrammetry is often used to record historical buildings which are at risk of falling down or which actually may even be scheduled to to be demolished and they'll create 3D models of them as a means of preservation is this also one of the motivations of doing underwater archaeology or as long as you don't disturb them you're going to be there anyways um,
1: Look I would say that There comes a point, we call it a site equilibrium, where often the really old sites have hit this point where they, if they do degrade, it's at a really, really super slow rate. And that's often because they're buried under sand and there's no bacteria, there's no oxygen and there's no light that can get to them. I think the most important role that digital reconstructions will play for maritime archaeology in the next 50 to 100 years is looking at our shipwrecks from the 19th and 20th century like World War I and World War II where at the moment they're sort of still standing structures and recognisable but they haven't hit that equilibrium so they're going to keep slowly um, breaking down for lack of a better word but they'll get to that point where they hit you know whether this entire hull has collapsed in on itself um, and it will start to sort of slow down but at the moment And I think this is most important for local diving and tourism operations where perhaps somewhere one of the key things about going to this uh, tropical island is to go diving on this famous shipwreck from World War II, yet in the next 50 years that may actually not be there or it'll be there, it just won't be as recognisable as a ship. So at the moment that photogrammic recording and digital reconstruction will really be about capturing those at this moment in time and trying to record as much as we can in the horrible case that all we have left in the future are those digital reconstructions.
0: Can you program a robot to do this? You wouldn't be limited by the time, the oxygen. I know with drones, when they're flying in the air, you can program them to do all sorts of things and you just watch them and they'll do their stuff, they'll take all their photos, land. Can you do this underwater or is the current and other things a major problem?
1: Um, I think we're getting to the point now where they're starting to design drone-like machines that can operate free of a tether to a mothership to do that. But um, my experience has been um, some deep sites, there's a famous World War II shipwreck-off Western Australia, um, called the HMAS Sydney 2. And in 2015, they went out and photographically recorded that with two ROVs and sets of cameras on them. And Sydney's sitting in about two kilometres of water off the Australian coast. So, really, really deep. You would never be able to dive that. Um, but they weren't as limited by time because it was um a robot that was tethered to the mothership that recorded that so we're sort of halfway there i guess
0: so i think that uh it was something that's i know done with artifacts at least from land-based sites is that once you've got a 3d model of them you can distribute these you know, so someone doesn't necessarily have to go and look at it in person uh for i could see something that someone may have digitized in china and someone else digitized something in scandinavia and you don't have to go there in person to look at the object you've got a, depending on the, the the scale of the of the model they made you potentially have a very good model you can create hundreds of copies because it's just digital there's nothing physical there yeah if you wanted to send your ship to someone who's working in another country to have a look at it a complete three d view is that something that's done?
1: yeah, definitely um I think there you know we're probably at a turning point now too where we need to sort of um i guess outline the ownership of digital copies of things and and photogrammetry, and that's becoming more and more prevalent, not just in in Um, archaeology and academia and research but I guess in any sphere you operate at the moment um, I would say it is going to be a fantastic tool for us like you're saying you know if I know there's someone who has specific knowledge about um, German built ships in the 18th century I can send them a copy of the site like you're saying and point out certain features and ask them questions and collaborate that way Um, a goal for me will be seeing in the future archaeologists having or maritime archaeologists having these fantastic 3D digital databases where it's it's based on the ship and the shipwreck and the excavation and you can go through layers of time from when you excavate to it's fully uncovered to reburying you can you know objects are recorded in the position they were found in but then you have this wonderful capability to open up a full database of the information on that object so I think that we're sort of just at this incredible precipice where we're going to hit a full-blown 3D digital world and it will just make what we do so much more interesting and so much more available, not just to the public, but then to us as archaeologists as well and to working on a site in that virtual sense will be really, really awesome.
0: When they do these digital site models, as you pointed out, These don't look like a ship that fell to the bottom. They look like they're spread out, like an airplane crash. Do they try to use these 3D models to try and put it back together to sort of see, okay, well, at one point it was whole and over time it fell apart and pieces moved apart. Do they try to re-put these back together or is it too difficult? Are the pieces too deteriorated to try and digitally reassemble the pieces?
1: Yeah, we do what we can. So um, often uh, when you start to recognise features of ships on the seafloor, you'll be able to tell that you might have, you know, 40% of the left side of the ship from the keel up um, and you'll have that planking well preserved and, and the frames, the ribs well preserved on the inside. And then, you, you know, as we record with 3D modelling, we can actually start to pick out other features that, you can recognise as belonging to a certain area in the ship, but like you're saying, you know, they often might be too deteriorated to put back in their exact spot. I mean, the other thing is is that although we have that great small section, the rest of the ship has disintegrated. So, we, you know, with shipwrecks, most of the time we work with such a small percentage of what's left of it that you can have an idea of it, and then you can actually create, you know, it's like drawing the ship's lines. You can recreate what you think the hull and the mast and the sails look like just from a small section of it. So kind of in a way, um, I would say we don't really have the technology to be able to do something cool like make a video where you've got the hull there and you put it all back together. That would be like a great end game. Um, but certainly we can do things at the moment where you can show the public, you know, where this part of the ship is sitting on the seafloor and then you can lift it up and you can redraw the ship around it. So it kind of points out where it's from. That's for sure. Yeah.
0: I didn't mean so much for rebuilding the entire ship, but to look at the process for how it fell apart
1: Yeah. and
0: it fell to the bottom. They probably would have had one or two big pieces, but when you find it today, hundreds of years later, it's here's a piece, there's a piece. And yes. is that one of the things that you look at to see how did it go from being one big piece to 50 pieces here and there and how it spread out?
1: Yeah, sure. Okay, then absolutely. And I would love to um, to get to the point where I can have a piece of software like that and maybe not putting together pieces um, very well, but even things in terms of seeing the spread of a site. So. You know the main site of the shipwreck might be in a small area but then you have this sort of stream down current where bits and pieces have slowly fallen off and the heavier they are the shorter they stop the closer to the shipwreck you know and the lighter they are the further away they go so yeah i i mean i would love a piece of software like that if there are any like computer it specialists listening to this and they want to develop a software for putting shipwrecks back together that would be fantastic
0: yeah or in addition to putting the back together and seeing what was the process by which they mm. fell apart and spread out
1: yeah which is a super complicated process as well and that um often like some of the best things we can find out are actually tracking it right back to when the ship is built and perhaps they used a timber that was too green and shouldn't have been built into a shipwreck and that actually has caused the site to break down quicker or a certain bit to break off you know before others had deteriorated so yeah definitely
0: what are you working on now
1: oh um that is a great great question i have quite a few um projects up my sleeve at the moment um my role here at the museum of tropical queensland means that i do a mix of archaeological research and collection management so I look after about 15,000 objects from shipwrecks that we have here. And right now I'm tackling the HMS Pandora collection, which is about 5,000 artifacts excavated from this shipwreck over a 10 year period. But it also comes with a legacy set of data, which I think is really relevant to all sorts of archeologists and people in museums today where all of the site plans, all of the data, the original information recorded from this shipwreck, all of the photos, the videography is all in an analog format. Um, and some of them are on floppy disks. Some of them are on DVDs and um, video cassette tapes. And it's at the point now where I can't access some of this data on my own laptop at work. So we're actually um, in this project of, digitizing a legacy collection to be able to do more work on the actual artifacts that we have. Does that make sense?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess this will be quite good in in terms of making the the data available to, to other researchers as well
1: yeah absolutely you know at the moment it's all just sitting here in our in our laboratory um in map drawers and things um i do have a long-term project of digitizing the photographs that were taken of pandora so the site photo mosaics pre-3d digital photogrammetry and actually running them through those 3d programs to see if we can get you know, models of time and excavation of Pandora from the 1970s up until 1999 was the last excavation. So it'll be a mix of sort of research and exhibition and then collaboration and putting a lot of this data online so people can actually learn more about it.
0: In addition to being a researcher, you're also the Senior Curator of Maritime Archaeology at the Queensland Museum Network. What does this job involve? I guess this project you just described is part of it?
1: Yes. Yeah, that's part of it. But I also uh, play a large role in in simple management of the objects. So that comes from having volunteers in and auditing what we have in the collection and, you know, checking that their state of preservation is is really good. Um, It involves at the moment, you know, taking photos and trying to get everything into the Queensland Museum's online database so that people around the world can search for certain objects. Um, Yeah, and I guess then the other side to that is a curator's job is is again that public outreach and communication and designing exhibitions um, to do with our shipwrecks here and maritime archaeology that We can have not only physical exhibitions in-house here, but digital online exhibitions are becoming more and more doable and and more and more a focus of of museums and institutes like this.
0: What advice would you give to someone who wants to be an underwater archaeologist or a maritime archaeologist? (laughs)
1: Um... Follow your passion, whatever you're interested in. I remember being told when I was 15 and decided I wanted to study shipwrecks that I would never get a job doing that um, and that I would be better off doing a business degree. Um, But look where I am now and that's because I love what I do. I guess the other thing I would say is to find somewhere that you can volunteer at to get an understanding of you know, what shipwrecks are and what's in a collection and what research is there to be done and and what really grabs your attention and interests you. I think... The thing about archaeology, and this is not just maritime archaeology, but archaeology in general, is that we have to also do a lot of physical work in, in often remote environments. So make sure you get some practical skills under your belt, you know, whether that's learning how to drive a car if you don't know that, or getting your scuba diving ticket and getting experience underwater, learning how to drive a boat, you know, a few sort of practical things that they don't really teach you about in high school or at university so um, a bit a twofold bit of advice go out and volunteer and get experience with the shipwreck material and with people that work in the environment but then also you know in the back of your mind just keep those practical skills building they'll be really important in the future.
0: What are some courses or training that you think are needed or very useful?
1: Oh, gosh. I I mean, academics tend to, you know, we'll we'll research and we'll learn about what we love foremost. So I definitely say 100% get your scuba diving certification if you want to be a maritime archaeologist and you can. I'm not saying that you can't be a maritime archaeologist without having a scuba diving certification, but it's certainly a bonus. Um, I also think that having background practical knowledge in just boat handling so whether you you know you go out for social days at your local yacht club or you know you jump on one weekend every few months with your friend's uncle's boat and learn how to drive it or you know, learn how to tie knots it's those sort of practical things So
0: general maritime skills
1: yeah definitely because when it comes to field work you want people on your team that can do the archaeology but that you can also rely on to drive the boat or you know or man the deck or things like that
0: well it's all been very interesting (laughs) thanks for taking the time to to tell us about your work and about maritime archaeology how is it different what's interesting about it and I found it interesting and I think that our listeners will find it very interesting as well.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for joining us. It was nice having you on the podcast today.
1: No worries at all. Thank you, Otis. It was a pleasure.
0: Have a nice day then.
1: Thanks, bye.
0: You've been listening to the Archeo Cafe podcast. For more episodes and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archeo Café Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. And remember, even the ancient world was fairly modern for its time.